Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Uh, and today I'm joined by composer uh, George Styles and lyricist Anthony Drew, who are currently at the Playhouse working on uh, the new musical Identical. Hi, how Craig. Hello, how are you doing? Thanks so Good, much thank for joining us. How's, uh, how's uh, Saturday morning in the sunshine in Nottingham treating you? Oh, it's hot. <laughs> it's already baking, isn't it? But no, it's a lovely morning. And we had a lovely day yesterday at the Zips Probe with the company and the orchestra together for the first time. Um, great stuff. Actually, um, that's, probably a good, that's probably a good place to start. Can you, um, uh, you said Zips Probe there. Can you perhaps talk, our through, talk through the listeners what a Zips Probe is? Well, it's one of those fabulous combined German words originally, Sitzprobe, literally means sitting rehearsal. It's from uh, actually stolen from opera, and it's mm-hmm. when the singing company and the orchestra get together for the very first time to get used to each other. Because before that, you've been rehearsing just with a piano. There's a lot of difference when you add strings, woodwind, brass, percussion, and so on. It's also the first time the director gets to hear the score, mm-hmm. other, other than being on, too, on a yeah. piano, yes. And, and, you know, so they, both the director and the choreographer will have an opinion as to whether certain little motifs are being brought out enough, whether a little figure in the music could be used within the choreography and things like that. So it, it's always a very exciting moment for everybody when, when we, everyone gets put together like that. Excellent. Well, this is a very exciting opportunity for us on the podcast, actually, because this is the first time we've uh, we ever had a duo on board. So can I ask, to begin with, how did you find each other? How did your working relationship begin? Well, we, we met when we were students at Exeter University. Mm-hmm. George and I both arrived there in 1980, where George was going to study music and I studied zoology and ecology shortly before the end of the last ice age <laughs> it is frightening we've, we've literally next march it will be 40 years that we've been writing together but we met at university we were both involved with student productions and after the last of those ones that we've been directly involved with either as musical director or director um we said to one another shall we try and write a musical because the only thing awaiting us other than something in the theatrical world was becoming teachers we both had places at teacher training college and stupidly really looking back the following day we went out and we booked a theater we booked oh, wow. theater next to saying right we've got to do it now because we've booked a theater and if we don't write a show and produce it next march um we're going to have a huge bill for an empty theater and stuart trotter the artistic director went along with this he said okay boys you can book it <laughs> so we did. <laughs> well you must I mean, have been very during persuasive. our time as students we'd become very regular features at the theatre. I managed to blag a job writing the music for plays, you know, the sort of background music, scene change music and so on, Mm -hmm. by pure chance. And Stuart, who was the artistic director at the time, was very much encouraging of getting students through the doors to help work in the theatre as well as as audience, because the Northcott is smack middle, in the middle of the Exeter University campus. Mm. And in its design is not entirely dissimilar to Nottingham Playhouse. It was built around the same time. Yeah, they are quite similar auditoriums, aren't they? They're, mm-hmm. I just asked, just to track back a little bit. So, George, obviously, you've gone to uh, 
you've gone to study music. But um, Anthony, was, was writing lyrics always in your head? Or were you always... No, it was never in my head. It was... Um, I mean, I, I, I did zoology and ecology because it was one of the academic subjects at my grammar school, Maystone Grammar School, that was better than, than following the arts. You know, they were very channeled into you become a banker or a lawyer or a doctor or a vet. And so if you had any sort of nous in the sciences, they were encouraging that. And I'm very keen on natural history. And so it seemed an obvious for me to do ecology at university. But I had never written. I directed my brother's. My brother is a composer and he'd written some musicals for schools. And I directed a couple of those. And I loved going to the theatre. And I, when I met George, and I'd seen all of these productions that George had written the music for. I mean, one of them was Anthony Schaffer's Murderer. And the mm. first... 20 minutes or so of the play, there's not a spoken word. It's entirely, mm. you're watching a man supposedly murdering his wife, cut her up and put her in the bath. And, and like, a, um, like a Hitchcock film, it was all about the underscore. And I, I, I heard George's music and I, you know, and I knew who he was, but it was an extraordinary first 20 minutes. I think that was a, one of the first productions that Nick Heitner it was, it was directed, who now runs the National, or then ran the National. Yeah, I got very lucky with my first professional gig to work with Nick Heitner. And what about you, George? Was it was it always writing music for the theatre that you thought you were going to do, or were, were there? No, like Anthony, I went to a school that, whilst it encouraged and nurtured the arts greatly, never really made you think there was a career in it. And indeed, I didn't know that I was so set on music to the point where I wanted to take a music A level. So actually, I had to blag my way into doing a degree anyway because I did not have the necessary, right. what is now called UCAS points to get mm. in. Mm -hmm. I, think back, I think back then in 1979, 1980, when we were applying to university, you would not have gone to your careers advisor and said, I want to be a lyricist or I want to be a composer. They'd, they'd have laughed you out of the room because it wasn't really something that people were doing and certainly not as a role model to follow in their footsteps. At that point, Although in the 60s we'd gone through Noel Coward and earlier than that we'd had Vivian Ellis and um, David Henniker having success writing musical comedies, old-fashioned musical comedies, it was only when Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice came along that you suddenly saw two people have this meteoric rise to fame with their global success. And then Howard Goodall, who wrote The Hired Man and has more recently, I mean, he writes sort of, um, sort of church music, but he also writes a lot of theme tunes, he did Black Adder and... Mm. Um, Red Dwarf. Vicar of Dibley. Vicar of Dibley. It wasn't something you would say, oh, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a lyricist. Because it was, it, you, you know, my parents sort of had a fit and there wasn't a blueprint to follow. So we were very lucky in that we met one another when we did and we, we got on so well and we started writing in a style that obviously people were responding to. You're at the end of your university. You've booked the theatre, and you're and you're going to write a musical. And is that mm -hmm. is that the musical that ends up becoming Tutankhamun? Is that the one? It is. That's right. yeah. Well done, Craig. <laughs> Very stuff. good. Full marks. <laughs> so tell me about um, the if you can cast your minds back and remember. Tell mm -hmm. me about the process of writing that first one and what that felt like and uh, how it ended up when it was. Uh, however many months later on the stage of the Northcott Theatre. It was an extraordinary thing because we went to see a production of Sondheim's Sweeney Todd in the Drum Theatre, which is the studio theatre of the Theatre Royal Plymouth, which was mm. brand new at those heady days. And we were so taken with what Sondheim did in that story of making you laugh and making you terrified and making you care about a serial killer and his wicked accomplice, Mrs Lovett, 
we just thought if musicals can be this groundbreaking and this dramatically interesting, we're in. So we wrote something that was absolutely nothing like that whatsoever. <laughs> but it was, it was actually through song, which is when you don't really stop for dialogue. Mm. Because around that time, that's what Andrew and Tim were doing. You know, Evita mm. is like a modern pop opera superstar, like a modern pop opera. So we thought we're right in that vein. And we, we wrote this musical that was set in two time scales. It was set in 1922 AD in the lead up to Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon discovering Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm. And it's also set in 1350 BC on the day that they're burying Tutankhamun. So our cast split themselves between being ancient Egyptians at a funeral procession and being um, 1920 socialites descending on the Valley of the Tombs. And it, Valley of the Kings, rather. It's kind of worked, but it worked partly because it was all George and I were doing. We were 21 and we just threw our heart and soul into it. And we, we produced it and directed it ourselves with a, a student cast. So even though we'd left the university, the university let us go back and use some of their facilities, including booking a, a student cast. Mm. There was one guy who was actually in our year who, who w went on to play Howard Carter, who's now made a career out of being an actor in, in, it, in being in the West End and all over the place. Um, but it was mainly students who were having to do their degrees at the same time. And by chance, somebody from Warner Brothers home video saw it and took George and I to breakfast. We only did eight performances. And um, he said, I think you should come and meet our managing director. So one day, George and I went up on the train to meet Johnny Sterling, the international managing director of Warner Brothers. And he he was very funny. He, he, he would we had many meetings with him in his office in Berner Street. And he used to say, I don't know, what am I going to do with you boys? What am I going to do with you boys? I don't know anything about musical theatre, but I like what you do. And he did in introduce us to three of his friends, one of whom was Tim Rice, who we were thrilled to meet. One was Biddy Hayward, who used to look after Android Webber. And one was a, an agent come producer called Alex Armitage, who produced Me and My Girl in the West End. And eventually Johnny signed us up. He gave us a two-year music publishing deal, which he said, I want to give you boys enough money to carry on doing what you're doing for two years without having to do anything else, without having to get a proper job. And mm. he signed us the same week he signed Banana Rama and Shaka Khan. <laughs> <laughs> the two of us. I uh, he made him more money. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. That was, a, that was a big week for him. He, he did well, though. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> We, um, uh, we, we did absolutely everything ourselves with Tutankhamun. We not only wrote it, we directed it, we designed it. You wrote the orchestrations. I wrote the orchestrations. We made plaster of Paris sarcophagi and things in our front living room. This little tiny thatch cottage we'd rented just outside Exeter. But when you're 21, you do that. You do stupid things. And, 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 and including, and Stuart Trotter only found this out after the event, the artistic director. We got very friendly with the stage management team there and the production managers. And if we needed wood, we would go every three and a half weeks when the show closed and all the set got put in a skip. We would be there scavenging whatever bits of wood we could find that were still usable. And likewise, if we needed a can of paint, we'd just put it on the bill. We'd go to Mike Redaway, the, the guy on the production management, and say, can we have a can we put another can of paint on the bill? So in actual <laughs> fact, our bill was getting bigger and bigger and bigger for this theatre if no audience turned up. And Stuart Trosh only found out about this after it had sold out for eight performances and we'd made our money back. We <laughs> sold every ticket. We made enough to go on holiday to Tenerife afterwards as well. We did, we did. 
<laughs> which the castle thought was because we'd been signed by Warner Brothers and they'd given us millions of pounds, which was actually nonsense. <laughs> we'd just siphoned some of the profit off from the production. One of the great things was that the Northcott has an orchestra pit, which is basically a four stage. When you're not doing a show with an orchestra, the orchestra pit is in a raised position and its wooden floor simply joins onto the front of the stage of the theatre. But when you have a show with a, with a pit, you sink it on a hydraulic motor and the orchestra can enter via a door below in the substage and play their show. And I thought, wait a minute, when we discover Tutankhamun's tomb, we need to do something dramatic here. So I thought, what if we sink the pit and we build a false floor, so a, a structure underneath it like scaffolding, which we can fill with the artifacts of Tutankhamun's tomb and some cleverly hidden lighting. And then we put a false top on that looks exactly like the floor of the theatre, the wooden floorboards. So that was the one thing that was quite imaginative and under, mm. undertaking because we had to get the thing stress tested so it could bear the weight of people and so on. It had to have a proper bit of engineering going on. And we, we buried it full of, it was also, we got very lucky, there was a simultaneous production at HTV television about Tutankhamun's tomb's discovery. And they made a set of replica treasures from the tomb. Mm -hmm. And we got onto the people at HTV because it was the local TV region and blagged to borrow these artifacts. Oh, well, that's great. And they let you have them. They let us loads of them. So we had like the funeral bed and mm -hmm. the- um, There was certainly a big gold face mask. Wasn't there was there? a big gold face mask and there was one of the statues of Carr, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. And but it meant, this, that, I think it meant that at the moment when Howard Carter discovered the tomb, which was the end of Act One, you push a button and the whole wedge comes up out of the floor. So the, the floor is now in its up position, but nine feet above it is a false floor. I mean, it looks like you're looking into the tomb. And of course, it was filled with smoke and glittering lights. And the audience literally went, wow, and ooh and ah, because it was the age of the, of the mega musical. You know, it was Starlight mm. Express and all of these shows, time and things in London, and audiences were getting used to being wowed by spectacle. So we did our own little bit of humble mm -hmm. spectacle at the Northcott. Humble spectacle, then, I like that very much. <laughs> the stage newspaper wrote a review that basically began, every now and again, the truly unexpected comes from the regional theatres of Great Britain. And then it proceeded to say that Tutankhamun was such a thing and that we were names to watch. And I think that all helped with getting the Warner Brothers deal over mm. the line. And then you're, um, you're off and you're on your way. And they, like, there's, um, like the list of uh, musicals that you've worked on is uh, it's astounding, really. You do Just So and like the fabulous Honk and Peter Pan and Betty Blue Eyes. But one thing I've noticed sort of looking at your body of work is that you, um, you've worked quite a lot on uh, musicals that come from existing source material. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder which of those ideas, if any, are they people coming to you with source material and going, do you think this could be a musical? And if so, what is it that makes you see a story in another form and makes you go, yes, actually, we can, this would be a great musical, actually, we can do this one. Well, there's a mixture. Some, some we've come up with the idea and some people have come to us with. La Betty Blue Eyes, for instance, which is based on a private function by Alan Bennett. Mm. Two guys in Los Angeles had one night watched the movie of a private function and one said to the other, that pig is singing to me. And <laughs> they thought that they thought it'd make a great musical. So they needed to find people to write the music and the song, you know, the lyrics mm. and the music. They were great friends with a, a composer called Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked. 
and they had Stephen around for dinner one night and Stephen said, you need British guys to write this, you need Styles and Drew, which was probably the first time Ron and Dan had heard of us, but they reached out to us and we became great friends with them and we wrote it in a very short space of time. Um, so that was a case of a project coming to us. In the case of Peter Pan, there had been a touring, a, a quite a big touring production that used to do Dartford and um, Brighton or somewhere like that, I think it was, or Southampton maybe. And it was a pantomime version, but because you put songs into a pantomime, the producer had chosen one of our songs from Just So as the final song for Peter Pan to sing within this panto. And he, having fallen in love with this song, he came to us and said, well, would you write the rest of the score? Mm. And the first thing we said was, we can't use that song because that belongs in another one of our musicals. But yes, we'll have a go at writing the score because we both love the Peter Pan story. And it seemed like a shoe in for the two of us, really, because it was the sort of thing we were doing. And so we wrote our, a whole new version of, of, of Peter Pan with, a, with the playwright Willis Hall. As to the source material, nearly all musicals, I would say most, by far the larger number of musicals, are based on something. They're either based <laughs> on a play or they're based on a book or they're based on a film. And, and sometimes you get both iterations working at the same time. I was talking about this the other day to somebody could, because in My Fair Lady, is based on Pygmalion. Well, it doesn't mm. stop Pygmalion still being done as a play. Mm. Um, and there have been stage versions of a play version of Les Miserables, as there have been straight film versions of Les Miserables, as there have been musical versions of Les Miserables. But there's something about having a blueprint of a story that, A, talks to you in the first place. And said, you know, when George and I read an idea for a musical, we say, does this project sing? Mm. Will we be adding anything to it by bringing songs to it? And I think, we're, we're quite judicious in the projects that we take on from that point of view as to whether or not we think they, they will make a good musical. But by having it based on J.M. Barry or Hans Christian Andersen or Alan Bennett, you've got a structure to start from. There's a lot of historical evidence for it as well. If you look at Rodgers and Hammerstein, they based things on pre-existing material. Uh, I think Oklahoma was a play called Green Grow the Lilacs, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Not a terribly well-known play, but they decided that was useful. And South Pacific was a series of stories, I think, called Tales from the South Seas. That's right. And, and even Sound and the Music was based on um, Maria von Trapp's memoir. memoirs, you know. But I um, think what Rodgers and Hammerstein taught us, and I think lead the way still, is that... You then have to ask yourself, why this story and why now? And there needs to be a large reason. So with South Pacific, they were, they absolutely were the first writers to skewer racism head on in a musical. And because they set it in the very recent past during the Second World War, they were writing something incredibly timely and topical. We always try and ask ourselves why we're writing a particular show at mm. a particular time. My um, my favourite story of the uh, of that is uh, is Carousel, which I believe is based on an obscure Hungarian play um, called By Lydia. Molnar. Yes, yes that's, right. that's right. And so, I, but someone had approached playwright Molnar and said, "Can we turn this play into an opera?" And he said, "No, I'm going to get I'm going to give it to these musical guys because if it's an opera, people will only remember the opera and not the play." Well, that <laughs> That worked out well for him, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. And sometimes it's an obscure play that might make a great musical or a, a not such a great film that might, there's something about it that might make a good musical. I mean, when we did Mary Poppins, of course, we were, we were running a huge risk because it was such a beloved film all around the world. And we were going to add songs to it and reinvent some of the songs that they already knew.
So that was a, I said to George, if we get this right, um, no one will know we've done anything. And if we get it wrong, we're, we're the ones who are going to get the blame. But that, I, um, this idea of uh, why this story, why now, brings us very nicely onto Identical, your, mm. uh, your new piece of work, opening at Nottingham Playhouse in the not-too-distant future. What was it that struck you about, uh, about this story when it, first, uh, when it first came to you? Well, it was Kenny, Kenny Wax, the producer, who came to us. We yeah. were very busy at the time. We had, we had one year about four years ago, five years ago. 2016, yeah. 2016, six years ago when we had three sh new shows all opening the same year, which is a bit crazy. We had Wind in the Willows coming into the Palladium. We had Half a Sixpence starting at Chichester coming to the West End. And we had Travels My Aunt opening in the smaller space at Chichester. And Kenny had approached us and said, would we be interested in doing The Parent Trap as a musical? And mm -hmm. we just said, we're too busy. We can't take on another project. And he said, I'll wait for you. Because we were saying, find other writers. It's a great idea, find other writers. And he said, no, I'm gonna wait for you too. And he did wait for us. And in the meantime, he had got a Scottish playwright called Stuart Patterson to do a treatment mm. based not on the Parent Trap movies, but on the Eric Kastner book upon which those two movies are based, which Eric Kastner had written after, just after the Second World War, when all of Europe was trying to reheal itself after the Second World War, in, including Germany. And he wanted to write something that was about a coming together which is what Germany was trying to do after the mm. Second World War, as much as every country was trying to do after the Second World War. And, you know, it, there was something that felt both timely and timeless about that story. And, and now, you know, what's, what's happening in the world now and, and it, with Ukraine and with what's happening in Britain divided over Brexit and our arguments with Europe and what's going on in Ireland and the, the protocol, there's something about a coming together which feels very timely at the moment, I think. And even though it's done on the microcosm of a family healing itself, it has a, a resonation that works, I think, on a more global level. And just coming back to this question uh, that I that, that sounds fascinating and really, really, really interesting. The idea of when you encounter a piece of material that you are considering turning into a musical, the question, does it sing? How do you go about answering that question? And perhaps you can you can use the uh, the parent trap and uh, identical as uh, to give us an illustration of how you find out if it sings. Well, of course, the simplest answer is you try writing a song and see if it works. And very quickly, we decided we would try writing a song with the parent trap. And the first moment that we tried is the first big song that the twins have together which is the moment when they realise that they must be related. They meet, as you know, they meet at summer camp completely unexpectedly. And one of them says to the other, why have you got my face? <laughs> and it gradually, you know, they become mortal enemies in a moment because they're two little nine-year-old girls with all of their group of friends. And of course, they just want to scratch each other's eyes out for having the cheek to have somebody else's <laughs> face. But very quickly as the night falls and they're trying to get to sleep in this dormitory full of girls at summer camp, they start talking and realise that they were both born in the same hospital and they share the same birthday. And one of them has a picture of their mother with them and they show the other girl and they very quickly say, I think that must be my mother too. And they sing this song called You're My Sister, which is their sort of discovery of the fact that they have a sibling in the world, not just a sibling, but a twin. And um, we thought, well, if we can make that work for two little girls, then we might be going somewhere. 
and we could barely get through singing the song to anyone without breaking down ourselves. So we thought it must be working. Either that or we're just as soft as old. I don't think that had ever happened before, but literally whenever we sang it, we couldn't get through it without getting choked. It's, it's, very, it's a very touching moment. And it's, you know, it's one of the key moments in the story, obviously, when the girls realise that they're twins. But from Stuart's treatment, which is what we had first, before he started fleshing it out in the scenes, we went through that and we said, okay, there could be a song here and it could cover this bit of the story and there could be a song here and this is where the mother is at work. And, you know, whatever it was, we would come up with an idea of, of how we're going to structure it from a musical point of view. And, and then in collaboration with Stuart, we talk about when he's fleshed it out as a script, we say, actually, that bit that you've written, that could be a song. So do you mind if we pinch that idea and turn that mm -hmm. moment into a song? Um, and then George also will write underscore, which links some sections together. And, and you know, it's a bit like a writing a film score for George. There's a th uh, underpinning some of the dialogue is, is a, a theme that makes complete dramatic sense to what's going on. Even it's very subliminal, you know, it's there as a little nudge. Well, the thing about music in a musical or indeed in an opera is it is the dramatic motor of the piece. In a play, that motor is down to rehearsing the actors and getting them to understand the pace of the story unfolding. Whereas in a musical, you generally entrust that pace to the conductor because it is driven. Some people liken musicals to a juggernaut. And if you don't get on the juggernaut at the beginning of the evening, you get crushed under its wheels. <laughs> For actors, they often say it's like jumping onto a moving vehicle that's going very fast. And the minute you jump on, you don't get off it again until the curtain comes down. And constructing that kind of fast moving vehicle is obviously a very long and detailed job. And we've been doing that in the microcosm of the detail of rehearsals with Trevor and I mm. over the last five weeks. Which is all reaching its culmination now, uh, identical yeah. opening at the Playhouse, gosh, very soon, in about 10 days now, I believe, which, yeah. is, uh, yeah, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, well, Yes, they're just your... down the hill now doing the technical rehearsals. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thank you so much Thanks, for Craig. taking the time. Anthony Drew and George Siles, it's been great. Thank you for coming on the Amplify podcast. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Styles and Drew. Now, as an extra special treat, we have an exclusive extract from yesterday's SITS probe. I hope you enjoy the small segment of the score from Identical. See you next time. It's the AD.